0: are listening to Downton Abbey the official podcast where we talk non-stop Downton with the cast and creators of the show it's hosted by me Anita Rani for you the Uber fans you're welcome this will be the final episode from me in this series therefore I wanted to take us back to the very beginning to when this world first came to life along the way to help me tell this story I'll be joined by the people who make it happen
2: very often, actually, there's a happy accident and the scene is better than you'd imagined it.
3: Only one episode had gone out by that point and I thought already we're becoming a cultural sort of reference point.
4: I mean, we couldn't have had a room like the library. It would have taken our entire budget.
0: First up, it's Mr Gareth Neem, Downton's producer extraordinaire. It was your idea, wasn't it? The whole series, it came. the spark came from you.
3: It did start that way, and it's an idea that had been percolating in my mind for for many, many years, I think. You know, as a British producer, I was trying to think of what can I do that's quintessentially British? And, you know, because we have to sell our shows all around the world. What, what are we going to do that nobody else can really do? And this is a very obvious genre. And I had watched Gosford Park, is the, is the Robert Altman film, that follows wrote the screenplay for and won an Academy Award. And the first film, first script, I think probably he'd ever had made, you know, extraordinary talent that that he has, that first job as a writer gets an Academy Award. But when I watched that film, which I had nothing to do with, I was so impressed with its attention to detail and... You know, probably like you, you know, us Brits have watched these costume dramas, historical dramas all our lives. And when I was watching that film, I suddenly realised everything I'd watched before that I didn't really believe. I didn't think it was accurate. For the first time, I thought, gosh, this story is being told to me by people who really know that world and they understand it. And the other thing is they're not cynical about it, which very often people are about aristocrats and the British aristocracy and the British Empire and all of those historic things that we can you know we we can look in quite a negative way about it but I thought no this film is made by people who kind of care about it anyway so that kind of stayed with me then Julian and I met and we we had a few ideas we were working on and the other thing in the mix is I was just flicking through the channels one day at home and I god knows what caused me to be on channel 185 or whatever it was And there was a rerun of Upstairs, Downstairs. And I was just about 40 years old and I knew instantly what it was, but I was too young never to have watched it. And I thought, well, if at the age of 40 I'm too young to ever have watched this show, then there's two generations younger than me that have never seen it either. This genre is ripe for reinvention because although there's a lot of historical dramas made, on British television in particular. They have tended recently to be liter- literary adaptations. And what I wanted to do was to create something brand new and original and with all of the freedom that that gives you. So it all came together and I had dinner one night with Julian and I pitched him this world. And I said, would I ever get, could I get you back into the, the world that you did so brilliantly in Gosford, but we'll do it as a long running episodic television show. And if we get it right, it's gonna be incredibly popular around the world and the rest is history. How-
0: Quickly did it get commissioned? That's a proper TV insider question, isn't it? But it had a
3: very smooth ride, and yeah. that doesn't happen very often. It
0: does. Why do you think that was? Just because, from what you've said, people just got it.
3: Yeah, I think I think there's something to do with his confidence in writing this material. He knows it and cares about it more than anyone else. And you know, he'd never written a television series. So it was quite a punt, and it turns out, you know that. You know, he's a big fan of television. He used to say he watched every episode of Coronation Street. You know, he liked the sort of soapy take of television, which Downton certainly had, which gave it huge popularity. And I took it to ITV because I wanted to slightly surprise the audience. Everyone thought it would be a BBC show. We never, ever went to the BBC with it. And I liked the idea that it might be on at nine o'clock after a shiny floor show and that it might have three generations of families watching it together, all of which is indeed what happened. And they got it straight away. Although, of course, as you know, in, in television, it's always the last thing that you're looking for is the thing you end up buying. And they weren't looking for a show like this, but I think they were so impressed by the whole presentation. I then commissioned them to write the first script and they liked the first script. And we were just very lucky with those executives at ITV that in the middle of the recession that we were going through back then, we were really lucky that in a very difficult year for ITV, they they ordered eight episodes from us and and it went very smoothly.
0: And when you're going through turbulent times, you turn to television for your escapism. You know, you want somewhere that you can disappear into where you feel a sense of calmness, nostalgia, you know, whatever Downson gives us, which is everything in that one hour. As you said, we laugh, we cry, we're with these characters. Yes. I know you could nobody can ever predict how well a programme is going to do. It's a phenomenon. It's gone round the world. I've talked to lots of the cast about the strange, wonderful places that people have popped up and said, we love the programme. But when did you suspect We've Got a Hit?
3: Uh, I thought it was a good show, a well-made show, but, you know, I've done lots of shows that I thought were very good shows and, and they just disappeared without a trace. So it went out, obviously, on Sunday nights. The following weekend on the Saturday, I had the radio on and the now Prime Minister's sister was on the radio. I just, I just heard Rachel Johnson on the on this programme and completely nothing to do with Downton. She referenced something as being in a Downton Abbey sort of way.
5: Mm, and I thought so only think?
3: one episode had gone out by that point and I thought already we're becoming a cultural sort of reference point. And then the second episode went out the following day and the audience went up by something like 30 percent, which is just unheard of. You know, you would expect your audience to dip a little bit in the second episode to go up by that much. That's when I realized this was going to be massive. And then it went to America later, several months later, and we saw it build in the States. And you saw it eventually, you know, went to every single territory on the planet that you can sell television to. And it just, it was this sort of cascading thing as it went around the world. America was behind the UK, but it became more and more and more and more and more popular and arguably you know, even more popular and successful in the US because of the size of that country than, than in the home country. So I suppose the success, it was that second episode and then the ripple effect as it went around the world.
0: Next up is one of the main ladies of Downton who you've never probably seen before, but she's very important, producer Liz Truebridge. Liz, this word producer. Yeah. Lots of people say it, but I don't think many people actually know what it means. What What is the job? What do you do, you know, for the people listening? I think people in the industry will know. What does I'm what? not so sure, <laughs> What do <don't> you do? <laughs> we know you're one of the big bosses.
6: I think... David Putnam, who was the producer, I think summed it up the best I've ever heard it, which is the director is responsible for everything in front of the camera and the producer's responsible for everything behind the camera, including the director. <laughs> so we, we are across, and that's why I love it, we're across from the very beginning, all through the script development, the casting. The the, the buck stops with you, Liz. Well, it stops with anybody who's got producer on the title. Um,
0: let's go right to the beginning. When did you first get involved in the project? How did you get involved in Downton?
6: I was working with Julian on a film called From Time to Time and he mentioned that he was writing this series called Downton Abbey and he told me about it and I thought, mm, <laughs> that sounds like something I have to do. Soon. Why? I knew it was material that he would write brilliantly. I love the idea of, I love the idea of it being. You know, it wasn't a period of history that sort of pre, during and post First World War. It was a real time of transition. There's not, not so much had been done around there, and you know it was our ambition to have three series if we could. But we knew that we'd have to write you know, do one then. It could stand alone if it didn't get recommissioned. But we know it did. Yes.
0: And then again. And, and again, again. And again. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about the script. Yeah. How does it work? Julian Fellows just hands it to you. You read it for the first time.
6: What's it's it- very... We've worked... You know, because we've worked together, Gareth, Julian and I, for so long, and we. it is just us who work on the scripts, we now... Julian delivers, we give our notes Julian delivers, we give our notes Julian delivers, we give our notes we have a way of being with Julian that he really he, he does the notes I mean he knows what we mean we know what he means, we know where he's going with something, we can put in some thoughts of our own and he will embrace them or not depending on how he feels no, I don't mean how he feels, I mean how he thinks it will work
0: I mean, after 12 years working together, it must be, there must be so much instinct between you as well.
6: Yeah, and I think the real joy of Downton for me is that we are allowed to get on with it. Focus are very good and they, they trust us because they think you know what you're doing. You know the world. So we don't get a lot of interference. What about when you disagree I'm up between the three of you? Does that happen? Who gets who
0: and who, who wins out? please tell me it's you liz
6: yeah. <laughs> do you know what it's staggeringly we 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 all have a lot of respect for one another and mostly now really we agree when we don't there is always a compromise that we can find a way to and it's but we always listen to one another because we we trust each other i'd like to say it was me who wins every time but <laughs> that would be not true um Was
0: there a moment, Liz, when you realised, oh, wow, we have created something quite special here? When did you clock that this wasn't just an ordinary TV
6: series, that this had become something more? When when our numbers went up for the second episode of the first series, I thought, oh, at least this is going to be a success, this first series. But it wasn't until I went to the States when we were Emmy-nominated... The first year we were Emmy nominated, we were unknown. Mm. But by the time I went back for the second nomination, there were just, I remember turning into a street. We were having tea or something, a downtown tea for the press. And I turned around and I thought, goodness, who else is here? Because there were just swarms of fans, all clutching big photographs. I thought, who is that? I'm curious now to know who's in there. And it was Jim Carter. And I thought, oh, my goodness, all these people are here for us. And it it, it was astonishing. There was some rock band there. Oh, you and then you I thought, are the
0: rock stars.
6: And I thought, wow, wow. And Dan Stephen tells a story of he was in the States. He was still in downtown at the time. He was on the west coast of the states, I think in Oregon or something, and he'd been in some national park and went to the book store, and there was somebody person serving was watching a little screen, and realised he was there. He sort of went because <coughs> <laughs> he wanted to pay for something, and she looked up and, went, and turned the screen round because she was watching him <gasps> in downtown. Which oh, she was she- doing that. It was amazing.
0: Yeah. Do you have pinch me moments?
6: Oh, still do. You must do. I mean, do. I still do. I feel so privileged. And when, you know, it's it's tough making these things, particularly during a COVID epidemic. It was appalling, pandemic, appallingly difficult sometimes. But you think of the audience who are waiting to see it and it makes a big difference.
0: Absolutely.
6: As you know, for many, many of us filmmakers, you never know who's going to see it. Yeah. And what um, it means to people. Exactly. I think there is something so humbling in it. When we were doing the series, we would get so many letters Mm -hmm. from families of people who who were in hospices Mm -hmm. just saying, my auntie or my granny or my mum or my sister, um, you made her last days so much better because we watched Downton together and it was, goodness me, yeah. you know you don't think you think i'm just making some telly <laughs> and then it just it does impact people and when it does it's enormously gratifying
0: it's because it's full of heart
6: yes it is Yeah,
0: it really and that you know that comes through in all the characters and <laughs> the storylines you what you've created is extraordinary Diving further into the filmmaking process, here's director Simon Curtis, who's known for movies Woman in Gold and My Week with Marilyn, amongst others. This was his first outing with Downton Abbey. Let's hear how he went about it. What happens once you've read the scripts and, you know, you've got your team? Where do you begin?
2: In some ways, it's much easier than usually, but you're not starting with a blank page. 80% of the cast is already in place. Most of the locations are already in place and so on. So, you know, that's a tremendous advantage. And, you know, we've got the ensemble here that is many of the best actors in the world, quite honestly. But my crucial first decision, because I wanted it to look magnificent, was to hire Andrew Dunn as DP, the director of photography, because I'd always admired his work. But crucially, he had been the DP on Gosford Park, Mm. which in many ways was the benchmark for this film and was the sort of godfather of Downton because you could argue without Gosford Park, there may never have been Downton. So it's full circle to go back to Andrew and he was a brilliant team member and brought a wonderful look to this
0: film. So let's try and get into your head a bit, Simon. How do you plan out a scene? What comes first?
2: Well, the script comes first and uh, you work out what's Julian saying in this scene? What's the important emotional beat Uh, and you make sure when you rehearse it with the cast that that is in evidence you know and everything is based around that and the shots come later for me I think for some people they come first but for me it's the, uh, the characters and what's the emotional story of this scene
0: So when do you, and this is just really understand it for anybody who has no idea about how to direct a film, which is, let's face it, most of us. Including me. (laughs) Um, What what point do you know what you're going to see through that camera lens? Uh,
2: When you see it. I mean, because the point is, I always like to have a plan of what the staging will be. So when the actors come on, I have an idea about, I think, you know, Hugh will be sitting there and if will be sitting there, you know, then Barrow will come in. But it could be that one of them has a question that exposes the whole thing, falls apart, or they have a better idea. So for me, I don't storyboard all those scenes in advance because if you do that, people feel restricted. Mm. But I always like to have an idea in case no one else has an idea.
0: And can that change based on how it's the scenes play? Yeah, that's
2: my point. Yeah. Yes, very much so. And you just hope the film making gods look after you, you know, and sometimes very often, actually, there's a happy accident and the scene is better than you'd imagined it, you know, or you know, them saying, well, I need to come in that way. You think, Oh, my goodness, that's much better, you know. But, you know, what was tricky about and is tricky about Downton is we are forever doing a scene that is, you know, just a, a page long scene that in most films would be two or three people. It's 12 people, each of whom have a line. So choreographing all of that every time was the tricky thing. Or there'd be, you know, they would be in the library having a drinks party and you think it's just one scene, but in fact, it's four or five mini scenes that all need their own coverage. You know, so that was, I found that tricky.
0: Because so much happens. Yeah. Uh,
2: and, you know, my goodness, you've got to get, you make sure that Tom and Lucy have their scene and then over there, Robert and Cora, do you see what I mean? And having the time to do that. Uh, was a big task.
0: The other things that actually stood out for me is a party, yes, and a live band playing. Yeah. I'm just intrigued to know more about how you You said you wanted to make this a real sort of glamorous feel and give it that kind of feature cinematic feel. How did you go about that?
2: Uh, we wanted a live band and, you know, we worked out that Josephine Baker would have been very big uh, in the south of France at that time. So we've got a sort of Josephine Baker-like singer and her band to play some beautiful standards of that time. And, you know, it's all outside with flambeaux and, a, you know, illuminated swimming pool and a lot of extras and, you know, it was... Um, actually, that sequence is split between a location in the UK and location in France, seamlessly, I hope. But uh, it definitely does feel like a very glamorous night out uh, on the Côte d'Azur.
0: There's another character in Downton that is arguably the most important and certainly the best looking. I'm talking about the stately home itself. Julian Fellows told me about finding the stunning Highclere Castle. Let's talk about the importance of Highclere and actually how you came to decide that Highclere was going to be Downton. Did you see lots of stately homes before you picked that one?
4: It was a a rather circular process, in fact, because I was absolutely aware that the house would be a central character, it had to be. And when you make a film of it, you need to get the house right. And I knew Highclere, I knew it before, and I knew it had, for me, several merits. One, obviously, it's a large house. But it's very straightforward one. So in terms of a visual narrative, within one episode, the audience would work out how it ran. You know, this is the library, this is the thingamajig, this is the drawing room. And it had the advantage of the door that takes you to the kitchen quarters and, the, and all of that is in the main hall. So you don't have to go off down a side passage to reach that. You can have the joining place between the two worlds in the main hall just outside the dining room. All of that was great. Also, it was built as a kind of, in the early years of Queen Victoria's reign, it actually, it's an envelope round an older house, but it was built by Charles Barry as a kind of celebration of aristocracy, mm. covered in coats of arms and mottos and this, and this and this and this and this. And I knew that part of the series would be about the decline of the public power of the aristocracy and they would have to get used to the new world to some degree or other. And it struck me as quite a nice sort sort of underlying joke that this house that is shouting the superiority of noble birth was in fact in retreat. But in the event, I got them, Gareth Neiman, the uh, the other people making the show, to come to Highclere first. And we went round it and I was doing a quite a big cell job. But then they thought, no, we can't. My wife's like this when she's shopping. She goes to the first shop. she's exactly what she wants. Will she buy it?
0: No. No. Of course no. not. You've got she's got to s-
4: go around 27 other shops. She's right. Come back and find it's gone. Of course. But, but um, <laughs> so we were doing that and we went house, 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 house. Then for a time, it was going to be, because it's set in Yorkshire, it was going to be made in Yorkshire. And the base would be not Ealing, but some studio in Yorkshire. And so then we went all around 150 houses in Yorkshire and so on. But then after all this, it might, the one thing I did believe very strongly is that however brilliant the designer, and we had a brilliant designer, we wouldn't have the budget to make a house look like a family had lived there for hundreds of years, unless a family had lived there for hundreds of years. And so the houses that had gone to schools or offices or whatever, this, that, and the other, and the idea was we'd use it, but we would replace everything from stores and all. I knew that was not realistic. Mm. Uh, And the fact is the Herbert family had lived at Highclere since the 1680s. And by filming there, the Herbert pictures on the walls would become, by definition, Crawley's. I mean, we couldn't have had a room like the library. It would have taken our entire budget. So, uh, anyway, we got to the point when we came down for breakfast on one of these tours and Gareth looked at me and he said, I think it's time to go back to (laughs)
0: Highcliffe. It is magnificent. So the house was discovered... Downton was born, however, that most definitely wasn't the job completed. That's when Donald Woods, role as production designer, came into play. He told me about the final touches that transformed Highclere Castle into Downton Abbey. I asked him what further transformations Downton underwent to bring it into the year 1928.
1: I think what's been interesting about Highclere itself, we do bring our own, we bring the Crawley's items into the house, because obviously Lord and Lady Carnarvon's house. But we bring quite a few truckloads of furniture and photographs and the rest of it. We change some of the portraiture. But really, over the years, that hasn't changed. I mean, if you go to any country house in England now, it hasn't changed from really the First World War. There's no mid-century furniture, there's hardly any Art Deco furniture. So in a strange way, we've kept a constant Whereas costume and makeup and other departments have had fun over since 1912 to 1927. But it's no harm being a constant. I think that's part of the strength of it. It actually is. There's a sort of warmth about it. It's it's always there.
0: So when you're designing a new space, a new set, I should say, Donald, how does the storytelling inform what you're designing? Um, I think
1: we've always tried to be historically accurate rather than particularly designed for a character we have a little bit um some of the mary's bedroom we made very strong colors and edith's bedroom rather more pastel but on the whole we've tried to be accurate and because you know when we first started this one of the biggest characters in the show is downton abbey itself is the house so we designed that character really and that was very important and it's a character that's shared by everybody
0: so continuing on from that just how collaborative is the process like how much time do you spend talking to other areas like anna robbins from costume for instance because from the viewer's perspective when we watch it it's seamless
1: um it's really beautifully collaborative you know it's that's what the joy of it all it, it, often it's not a long conversation but you have a sort of brief conversation about colors or about mood or about how it might look or we share all the location photographs with Anna, so she knows we're going to a new house, or we're going to a church, or we're going to wherever. What it looks like and what that what that's going to feel like. It's quite joyous, and it's part of the joy of being in the industry. That you have somebody will have a good idea, and it might not be you. It might be somebody else, and that's you grab that idea and run with it. I think that's why I've enjoyed working with it so long because meeting creative people is is a joy.
0: So, are there some ideas that you have that just don't work for whatever reason? But you just shelve them and then they come back to life. Just how satisfying is that when finally you get to see your creations come to life?
1: Well, I got quite a ribbing from Jim Carter about building the wine cellar in the first film because he's always wanted a wine cellar right from the very start. <laughs> We've never been able to afford to build it on television budget, but because it's a feature film budget we, we we gave him his um his wine cellar. he was over the moon I think he wanted to write more and more scenes in there but uh yeah that, that was that was fun to do Jim was I got a pat on the back from Jim
0: excellent so that's Jim Carter who plays Mr Carson okay so my last question have you ever seen the Downton effect seep into real life
1: um y- yes I I got an award got got an award from the Swedish antiques society for reviving antiques in sweden this is about god season three or something like that their business had been boosted by fringes on the bottom of light shades and you know dark wood furniture so um there we are (laughs) sweden if nothing else
0: that's amazing i hope that's taken pride of place in your trophy cabinet donald
1: nearly yeah (laughs)
0: Another vital component of the world of Downton is Alistair Bruce, its historical consultant. Alistair, you have a very important job. Going back to the very beginning, how did it come about? How did you land the gig?
7: The reason I got the job, I think, is because Julian Fellows and I have known each other a very long time. He fell in love with and married one of my oldest friends. And right at the beginning of that marriage, he was making a BBC drama for children, and I helped him get a coronation right for King Edward VI. Now, coronations are my subject. I even had a conversation with the Queen in a documentary about what it was like to be crowned. So I know this stuff, and his director wanted to turn the coronation chair, that's the chair in which the monarch is anointed with oil and has the crown placed on their head, he wanted it facing the congregation, which is like the audience in a church. And I said, well, it's the other way around, because the relationship between the monarch at that moment is not with the congregation or audience, but with God. So they need to be. He said, yeah, but that won't give me a very good picture. And I said, well, look, you can do what you like, but I'm telling you what's right. And I think Julian recognised that I will deliver correctness.
0: You've been working on this project for over a decade now. It must be so satisfying as a historical advisor, but has there been a time where you've been really pushed to find a bit of information?
7: Julian set a special moment when Lady Rose McClure is presented to King George V and Queen Mary, and it was called A Presentation at Court. I love going to the archives at Windsor Castle and requesting for the year that it was set... The papers on the court of that time. And I remember sat there in the round tower of Windsor Castle. It's a very Dickensian environment in its own way, cut off from the world and in a castle and generally right at the heart of the Queen's life. And then I heard a squeak, 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 squeak as this trolley was brought towards me. And a very, very dusty volume was placed by this very helpful lady in front of me. And with my white gloves on, I made my way through it. And I found precisely the music that was played, precisely the people who were presented, all the details of the food that was eaten in the supper. And I took all of this and I gave it to production. And I had great fun helping them interpret it.
0: That is actually my next question, as well as advising and directing the actors on set. Do you work with other departments in the development stages?
7: I work really closely with all the different departments. And I think that working with the producers, particularly Liz Bridge, I'm going around just spotting the very subtle intricacies that mark the difference between what actually was aristocratic and what sometimes, in retrospect, appears to be aristocratic. For instance, we hired a considerable quantity of silver to go into the silver pantry, which was in Carson's office, and it was quite shocking when I walked in, and it had a lot of what we know in restaurants as wine chillers. And, of course, no aristocrat would have had that, not in a million years. And there were particular items that were brought for breakfast and laid out on the sideboard. And, and I'm going to be very classist here. There are things that the middle classes would have had and there are things that the aristocrats would have had. And I can spot the difference. So I'm always scouring away and also the way people lay tables there is a way that it's perceived as acceptable now and I don't care what anyone does but if they ask me to tell you how an aristocratic table should be laid in anywhere between 19 well actually anywhere pretty much between 1789 and 1945 I'll nail it and that is both helpful and aggravating to the preparatory excellence of all those other departments.
0: Okay well my last question What stands out to you in this new era? I was curious about the 30s, the decade we're coming into, because it's 1928. Obviously, we're two years away from the 30s. So from a historical point of view, were there any elements of this decade that you felt were teased that would later become known as symbolic of the 30s? So things that we were already seeing in the late 20s, like fashion or music.
7: With the benefit of hindsight, we know that the 30s are going to start with the impact of the Great Depression. And there's a great sense, I think, hinted at by the wealth and splendor of society and the grandeur that's been recovered after the First World War. And you're starting to see with the dismantling of a society in which everyone knew their place. And that is the reality of this late 20s period. There's a sort of anticipated ill ease about good fortune. And I think you're seeing it in the way in which the very, the very certainties of the society that we've got to know in Downton Abbey is shaken by both opportunity for some and challenge for others. And you're just getting a sense that the, the tectonic plates of time are shifting into a position where radical earthquake is coming.
0: Moving on to another critical part of the Downton experience, the iconic theme music. As soon as it starts, you know you're about to step into another world where all is well, but sometimes it isn't, the world of Downton. I asked Kevin Doyle, Mr Mosley, what his response was when he hears the theme music even now.
5: Oh, uh, oh, gosh. Uh, there's a lovely moment in the first film where because um, the, the producers deliberately held the music back for quite some time. And then uh, I don't know whether you remember, but there's the story of the letter from from Buckingham Palace slowly making its way by train and motorcycle and postman to the door of Downton and then suddenly the camera comes back. And that's when the music kicks in. And I remember the, the audience just started to, to applaud. Um, and um, so it obviously has come some kind of visceral response uh, in, in the audience. It's a remarkable thing. It seems to have really found its home on the big screen, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a surprise to me. I wasn't sure. There aren't many, I don't think there is a precedent, actually, for a British show making the transition to... The cinema yeah so well certainly so successfully and uh and I wasn't sure whether it would just look like oh it's Downton Abbey but on a big screen but it kind of the big screen really it just sort of it just offered up something else it kind of you sort of see the house uh and those wonderful locations uh, with a completely new eye so hopefully well I'm sure the kind of cinematic response the cinematic experience of Downton Abbey is kind of, it's well and truly there now, I think. Um, and I think this new story certainly delivers.
0: It might be the best one yet.
5: Well, I think it might be. I think it yeah. might
0: Well, there you have it. We've almost come to an end of this Downton deep dive with me, Anita Rani, but I have one question left for Gareth Neem, Liz Truebridge, and Julian Fellows. How long will you keep it going for?
3: Well, I joke that somebody will be making some version of Downs and Abbey long after we're dead. So, um, (laughs) you know, I've been working on this every day for whatever it's been now, 15 years. And and I don't expect that to stop.
0: Good. We're (laughs) delighted to hear that. I can't tell you what
3: comes next, but something will, I think.
0: Liz, um, I've been speaking to all the fans and they love it very much and they would happily have more. And they've also told me that they feel there needs to be a storyline where an Indian princess arrives. <laughs> have and, they? Yes, they have. And yeah. I'm going to put a little email to Jill Travelic
6: yeah. suggesting somebody <laughs> for that part. I can't imagine who it would be, <laughs> but that, yeah, do, please do. If they want it, we would be happy to do it. That's the thing to say.
0: Julian Fellows. Is it going to go on and on and on? Will we get more Downton? Are we going to bring it right up to the modern era, present day?
4: every time I finish one of these things, I think I'm saying goodbye to them all. But I've now said goodbye to them all four times.
0: (laughs) So it's not goodbye. So
4: I've learnt not to make any statements about that, really.
0: That's it from me for the moment. I'm off to dress for dinner, but stay following us as there is more to come from Downton Abbey, the official podcast. Downton Abbey, the official podcast is produced by Something Else in association with Focus Features, Universal Pictures International and Carnival Films.